Great. Okay, so welcome. We're starting the next book of the Torah this week, the book of um, Bamidbar, known as the book of numbers in English. And uh, just as an overview for those uh, uh, who, who, who can use it, um, it's the fourth book of the Torah. And what transpires in this book, it begins, we are now, they are, the children of Israel are still at Mount Sinai. They've been there for a year. They, the book of Numbers begins with a census. That's what it's called the book of Numbers in Greek and in English. It even is called Sefer HaPakudot, the book of counting, accountings in uh, Hebrew as one of its alternate names. And the children of Israel are organized into their camps and into how they are going to travel through the wilderness. And that's how the book begins. And the first few chapters in the book get them all organized, explain the trumpets that are gonna sound when it's time to break camp, describe the cloud, the divine presence that's gonna lift. And when they see it lift, it's time to follow it. And it's a whole description. And then, then they're, they, they're off on their way and their adventure, it's about their adventures, um, misadventures <laughs> in the wilderness. Um, of course, it's in this book that when the uh, scouts come back from scouting the land of Canaan um, and cannot muster the courage to tell the people to go forth um, and the people mm, respond with um, um, a rebellion, uh, uh, God says, well, this people is not going to go up to the land. They're going to uh, drop here in the wilderness and only their descendants will go to the land. And then uh, uh, there's more turmoil. And then the, the, there's a 38 year gap. And in chapter 20, it picks up again, 38 years later, they've been wandering. And now it's the 40th year. And the, when the book of numbers ends, um, uh, Miriam dies and Aaron dies and uh, it's time and they reach the banks of the Jordan. And so that's the whole trajectory of the book. It's got, it's got some amazing, compelling stories in it. But the book of Numbers begins with what one I would say objectively is a very boring portion because <laughs> it's, it's a census. Um, and uh, um, this is, and so literally there's, there's chapters of names and numbers and uh, um, so I'm actually not going to focus on the big picture of the portion today, but rather drill down into a one verse that becomes a central, uh, a central um, source of our understanding 
ancient from the beginning about what, what's going on here. The question, why does God need to count us over and over? And um, because I'm sure it seemed a little boring then too uh, to early readers. It's like, what's this doing here? Um, and so what I want to do is uh, look at the beginning of the text and uh, then use this is that this and 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 I have a there's a beautiful column by the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs about this and some other teachings that I want to share with you uh, that'll be our focus today. Let me share the screen. Here's the beginning of the book of Numbers. On the first day of the second month in the second year, God spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, saying, on the first day of the second month in the second year, following the exodus from the land of Egypt, Here's what you have to do. Take a census of the whole Israelite company of fighters by the clans of its ancestral houses, listing the names every male head by head. Um, this is the verse we're going to focus on. Um, now, the first thing we have to do, as we always have to do almost all the time with the Torah, is the question of counting, as all of us know, is a question of who counts, right? That's, that's true in English and it's true in Hebrew, actually, the way the words work. If you count, you're counted. So the modern question is who counts in a minion, right? It, you know, who gets to be considered part of the voting population? Right. The, and so it's our job. And we've talked about this many times to understand um, that in ancient Israel, when a, a head of a household, if someone of fighting age was counted. Um, um, oh, I'll get to that in a second, Alan. It's very good. Fighting when someone of fighting age is counted. Um, they represent the rest of their family, right? That's why the missus takes the husband's name until recently, right? This is, this is as old as it is in our lifetimes, right? This isn't, the, the Bible didn't invent this problem uh, that we are working in our society to see if we can uh, um, uh, undo. Um, so, so, the, uh, the, the dependents in that household were counted, but only as um, a sub, you know, under the, um, under the umbrella of the person who was counted. And we are now altering that calculus, right? Um, and we know that the Bible was counting and talking about the children of Israel. And up until, very mo only modern times, 
the idea that we should expand that count to include the rest of humanity was implicit in Judaism, but we are busy making it explicit. So you take the principle that everyone counts and we continue, our job is to continue to expand that definition. That's how I, that's how I approach the Torah, as you all know by now. Um, Ellen Weaver says, isn't there a question with a tzava is military or community? In verse three, it says, from you and Aaron shall record them by their groups from the age of 20 years up, all those in Israel who are able to bear arms. Letziv otam. Tzava means army. Tzava means a host, the heavenly hosts. Uh, so it's, um, I never heard that before, Ellen. Do you know more? In Kaplan, um, it says, where is it? Um, according to some, this was meant to, it was for military service and meant to exclude those who were physically disabled. According to others, Savad does not denote a military army, but the community as a whole and quote, going out to Savad denotes those who are full-fledged members of the community. Interesting. I didn't know and, that. And it says it may also denote all who had participated in the building of the Mishkan. So that's so we all can I know already about start it. expanding it. Um, uh, Kol Yotzei Tzabab Yisrael, uh, the commentary has already started expanding that a long time ago from the, it's, it's more um, uh, uh, narrow understanding. Thank you. Uh, tseva means color, as Marcus says, but that's with an ayin, not with an aleph. However, it's certainly within our um, uh, our range of Hebrew wordplay to take an ayin and an aleph and um, interchange them. And that would be a beautiful reading, all the colors of Israel. Uh, I like it. I like it. It's a, again, it's a holy misreading, which is one of the things that we do when we're with, with Torah. That's lovely. All the colors, because each of the 12 tribes in this portion has a banner, a degel, a flag. And so maybe this was, it's interesting when you think about military, about the color guard in military things, uh, my mind starts working on that connection. Thank you very much. Okay. So, um, so having given that as our basis that we are now considering everyone um, uh, worth counting, is, 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 it deserves to be counted, merits, everybody counts. Um, then we uh, come to the, uh, what becomes the word that gets worked over the most. It says, se'u et rosh. Kol adat b'nei Yisrael. Take a census. But this is an interesting turn of phrase. Se'u means lift up the head of every member of 
the uh, children of Israel. Lift up the head. Okay, I'm gonna uh, just stop sharing so we can see each other. It's a nice turn of phrase, isn't it? And it asks it, so it begs for interpretation. It doesn't, there are many words for counting in Hebrew. Livkod, lispor, limnot, but it says lift up the head. So in the nature of Torah commentary, as I think we've gotten used to at this point, when there's an, an odd phrasing or an unusual phrasing, it, 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 it invites multiple commentary. And, oh, Ellen, your hand's up. Do you want to add something? Well, I was just thinking about how you emphasized in Bekhu Kotai in verse 13, broke the bands of your yoke and led you forth with your heads held high. And now here mm -hmm. we are, lift up your heads. Oh. It just was a nice correspondence. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you for mentioning that last week's portion. I am Yudhe Vavhe, who broke the yoke off your necks of servitude so that you might walk erect um, with your heads up. That's beautiful. Good, great Torah there. Thank you. Abigail? Uh, in the priestly blessing, it says um, God will lift his face to you or something mm -hmm. like that. that the same verb? Almost. Oh, it's the same verb. Yisa Adonai Panav Elecha Vyasem Lecha Shalom. May Yud Hevavhe lift up God's own Panim face to yeah. you and uh, grant you peace. So, yeah. yes. So, you know, last night with um, um, Rabbi Toba, talking about the power of metaphors, that, they're, that all our understandings of our experience are, uh, we put in terms of our bodies. They're embodied, that's how we relate to the world. So that lift up your head has so much meaning to it. Lift up your face to someone. What a powerful metaphor. I mean, you think about being downcast, you know, when somebody's depressed, they, they mm -hmm. slump their head down. Mm -hmm. So lifting your head up, you know, and of course, God is so proud of us looking up like, oh, you cute little kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes. So there's looking up like a, a child looking up. At a, and there's also um, holding your head high. Right. That's another nice metaphor for all of this. And that's, that, that um, thrust is what the commentaries say, is that, uh, so Rashi, uh, the, who is the most, uh, the, the most essential commentary of the Torah, addressing the question of what it means that God lifted up. Oh, oh, Sylvia, I'll, I'll recognize you in a second. I just, there was one more crucial word. Um, that I wanted, that I forgot to share with you in that verse. Legulgelotam, head by head. So, gulgolet is an interesting Hebrew word because anyone know what a galgal is? It's a wheel or a, a wave. Spear. 
away. And Gilgul Nefesh is uh, reincarnation. Oh, that's right. But a Galgal is a is is a sphere. Uh, uh, or a we so our skulls, the, the Hebrew word for skull is Gulgolet. So but it's a you're right, it's a beautiful word because Ligalot means also to reveal or uncover. It's an amazing word. Liglot means to exile. It's a crazy word. Uh, however, in this case, Gulgolet is your skull. So it's very, again, this is so physical. Lift up the Rosh, the head. And Gulgolet is essentially a synonym for that. So this is so physical. By the way, it, the most famous one, there's a place called Golgotha in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is supposed to have been crucified, the hill of Golgotha. That's just a Greek translation of the hill of Golgolet, uh, which was sort of the place of, it was a, it was a killing ground where the skull, the skull, the skull hill, you know, it's like, that's just an aside uh, where that word Golgotha comes from, if for anyone who's familiar with it. Okay, so let me stop the share just a sec. Sylvia. You know, I'm remembering what you talked about last year. I think it was last year about this and connecting that with what you're talking about today about who counts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember you saying that part of the lifting of the head was to look upon each person. That yes. To look, to look at, and when you think of it as the people that don't count are usually people who we don't see. Mm. They're the unseen population, not literally unseen, but the people that we choose not to see are also the people that we don't count. People who are invisible to us because yes. they're, yeah. Uh, well, so I yeah. Sylvia, I didn't even remember that I talked about the same thing last year, but I've always figured after all these years that talking about a subject once a year is good, <laughs> even if it's the same subject, because <laughs> we'll-, well I'm, I'm hearing it differently this year. So it right. is good to yeah. talk about it. Again, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Leah, did you raise your hand? Well, I was just going to say about the word Gilgal. Isn't it Gilgalim are wheels? Yes, Galgalim. So it has to do with round. The word Galgal has to do with roundness. And also waves, waves yes. of the ocean, Gilgalim. Galim. Waves are Galim. Galim, Galim. Wheels are Galgalim. The best, the best Hebrew radio station is called Galgalatz. Uh, uh, anyway, and um, Galgalim are wheels. Galim are waves. Gulgolet is a skull. Yeah. You, and I was thinking also about panim, meaning face, but it's, in the, it's a plural word. It's a singular word, but it's in the plural. And I'm thinking about many faces. Your face can have... Many faces, you know, the, the face you show to the public and the face you show at home and all that. In Isn't that beautiful? Um, uh, let's let's talk about panim also for a minute, uh, because as as um, Leah just said, panim is your face, your countenance. When you are lifne someone, you're in their presence. You're before them. They can see your face. God speaks to Moses, panim el panim, face to face, but panim is plural. 
Punim. Oh, by the way, Panim in Yiddish is Punim. That's a word that anyone who knows a few years, words of Yiddish heard because you had a Shana Punim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Same word. Same word. So um, another interesting thing about Panim is Panim means within. So Panim has implicit in its meaning, embedded in its meaning that when you see someone's face, you're seeing their um, within them, right? Because the eyes are the windows to the soul. That's how we'd say it in English. And it, all of that is contained in the Hebrew word for uh, that Hebrew root. Lifnot means to turn towards. Tanui means empty. So it's a fascinating, one of those words that has its own, that has presence and emptiness in it at the same time. Um, it's, it's that it has its own meaning and its opposite sort of is somehow in there. It's a word that a human face deserve, the human face deserves a word like that, Panim, that has so much uh, in, in it and, and so much, including paradox. And so I was reading an interpretation about when God spoke to Moses, Panim el Panim, one of the interpretations of that, I just read this today. I don't know how I, how I came across it. I'm glad this has come up, is that, uh, when it says God spoke to Moses, panim el panim, it's Moses panim el panim. Moses was facing his own interior. Isn't that beautiful? That that's where Moses would meet God in the inwardness. So I just love that. Okay, Marcus and then Gail. This is fun, thank you. Hi, so uh, in Breshit, in so-called Genesis, right? Um, and darkness on the, upon the face of the deep. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same word. And it means paradoxically, exactly as you're wisely saying, depth and surface, surface. On, a lot of the translations will say on the surface of the deep. Very beginning of Genesis. On the surface of the deep. And that phrase itself, the surface of the deep, embodies the very paradox. Nicely said. Because if we can't, if you try to read the second verse, of, the first verses of Genesis, literally, it's like, what do you even, why are you even talking like that? Where, <laughs> here's, here, here's language trying to reveal the mystery of creation. It's like, yeah, good choice of words. Thank you. Sure. Gail? So, so this is a stretch, but you know, as you know, I read Torah all about the inner work, the path. Yeah. Of, right. So in everything you're saying, it can be read that the people, that what's being counted um, are all of the aspects of the of self. Okay. And as anyone who has sat in meditation realizes the number of thoughts and that go through one's mind in the space of 10 minutes um, adds up to an enormous number of um, selves in there, of bits and pieces of you know, being. 
And when you started to talk about, you know, the head raised is so that one can see the eyes. One is alert for one thing. And also looking into the eyes, which is where you just went of going inside. So this whole piece can also be read in terms of going inward to oneself and all of becoming aware. And in that becoming very aware, becoming closer to God. That's all. Mm, thank you. Well, then I'm going to keep playing with words. I'm going to go back to the text for a second and show you something. Thank you, Gail. That's, this, is, this is based on what you just said. I'm going back to the text. And in the next verse, it says, Mi ben esrim mala, kol Israel, tif kadu otam. Okay, you and Aaron shall record them by their groups from the age of 20 years up, all those in Israel who are able to bear arms. Tif kadu here is translated as record. Okay, I just want to say that word, tif kadu. So, the root pakad means to record, remember, account for, um, the uh, Adonai pakad et Sarah, and God and remember, and God remembered Sarah, and uh, uh, she became pregnant. So it's a really interesting word to that if you're. If you're doing this recording and accounting, you're also doing something much deeper. Am I, do you follow what I'm saying, Gail? Uh, it implies something that is not superficial. Mm -hmm. But inward. And inward, that's right, that's right. It can go both ways, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. So now, yes, do you wanna say anything else? Oh, great, okay, thank you. So, Let's see how Rashi said it in a beautiful story type language. Um, here we go. Look what you can do with, um, with, uh, I have to wait, I have to move this over so I can see it. Can you still see it if it's over there? Oh, okay. Uh, because what I need to do is click on this verse and up come all the commentaries. And here's Rashi. And Rashi said, I'm just gonna move that over a little. Um, oh no, I guess I need verse one. Uh, Rashi's first opening commentary on the entire book of Numbers is take ye the sum of all the congregation. Why does God, the implicit question, because Rashi is written in a very shorthand, why does God need to count them? Because they were dear to him. He counts them every now and then. I love that. When they went forth from Egypt, he counted them. Exodus. Or many of them fell in consequence of them having to worship the golden calf. He counted them. When he was about to make his shechina dwell amongst them, he counted them. So that's Rashi's um, comment. Why does God count us so much? Because we are dear. 
to God. Isn't that beautiful? Um, and then, of course, that's got a beautiful kind of caregiver quality to it because anybody who led class trips knows like you're counting all the time, right? You don't want to lose a single one of them, right? Uh, all the time, all the time, the whole trip, every one of them, nobody's going to get left behind, right? That's, that's what's there for me with that beautiful, that beautiful phrasing. Um, so now, I want to turn to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who writes a beautiful thing on this that I, I, I um, was very taken by. So let me turn to him and we will bounce off of what he has to say. Let's see, where is Jonathan Sachs? There we go. He calls his, his commentary, leading a nation of individuals. Here, the Book of Bamidbar begins with a census. We've been talking about that. Why so much counting? On the one hand, Rashi says that the acts of counting in the Torah are gestures of love on the part of God. We just heard that because they are dear to him. Uh, but elsewhere, when God initiates a census, yeah, on the other hand, the Torah is explicit in saying that taking a census of the nation is fraught with risk. And it's true. It's like, do you know about the Jewish tradition about not counting? Not one, not two, not three. This is ancient superstition that by pointing someone out and counting them, you're somehow uh, the, the, the evil eye is going to uh, uh, snag them, right? It's like, there's something about that that, that goes way back. But here I want to continue with, why does the Torah not use the simple words for census, choosing instead the roundabout expression, lift the heads of the people? We've been addressing all of this. The short answer is, I like this answer. In any census count or roll, roll call, there's a tendency to focus on the total, the crowd, the multitude, the mass, Here's a nation of 60 million people or a company with 100,000 employees or a sports crowd of 60,000. And any total tends to value the group or nation as a whole. The larger the total, the stronger the army, the more popular the team and the more successful the company. Counting in this sense devalues the individual and tends to make him or her replaceable. If one soldier dies in battle, another will take their place. If one person leaves the organization, someone else can be hired to do their job. And then, oh boy, this is a whole, this, we would talk about this for hours. Notoriously too, crowds have the effect of tending to make the individual lose their independent judgment and follow what others are doing. We call this herd behavior and it sometimes leads to collective madness. Indeed, a 
crowd, the crowd, a study of popular mind, 1895, showed how crowds exercise a magnetic influence that transmutes the behavior of individuals into a collective group mind. As he put it, an individual in a crowd is a grain of sand amid other grains of sand, which the wind stirs up at will. People in a crowd become anonymous. Their conscience is silent. They lose a sense of personal responsibility. Now, as an aside, but an important aside, I'm gonna change the um, uh, tab here to show you this article that a colleague shared with me. It's called, by Jonathan Haidt in the Atlantic, and it's called, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Um, it's a superb article. And one of the, the I'd say the, the chief, the, the um, so the Atlantic, right? Um, I found it to be extremely clarifying, which is why I'm sharing it with you. Uh, I guess I can, um, let's see, how do I get the... Um, Click up at the top where it says theatlantic.com and that gets you the URL for the page. Right there? No, up above. Oh, and, I can't see it. Because, oh, right, there it is. Okay, duh. It was hiding behind my- Right, my now copy blue. paste that into the chat. Copy. Paste. Oops. Oh, whoops. Okay, do it later. Sorry about that, everybody. I pressed the wrong, I pressed, uh, I did the wrong thing. Okay, so let me go back to, uh, the thrust of his article is that the anonymity and herd mentality that's rewarded on the internet has accelerated our decline um, geometrically. It's a very clarifying article and it's related to what Jonathan Sachs is saying about the loss of individuality. Thank you, Rabbi Ellen. So back to, so I invite you to read that article just because I think he's nailing it in a way that I hadn't been able to articulate of why things are breaking down in the way it was the speed that they're breaking down. Why our, why our social contract? Because if the Torah is about anything, it's about a social contract, otherwise known as a covenant, that the band of slaves and hangers on enter into at Mount Sinai, that will allow them to live under a shared understanding of justice and compassion. Abigail. On the uh, news on NPR, they feature the music that somebody who's died of COVID uh, loved and a relative talking about why they like that piece of music or how it was related to the person to give a face uh, to the numbers of people who've died of COVID. Mm -hmm. Well said. Thank you, Abigail. Let me read a little more 
of Rabbi Sachs. Crowds are peculiarly prone to regressive behavior, primitive reactions, and instinctual behavior. Now, if you go on reading in the book of Numbers, that is the children of Israel over and over again, responding collectively with uh, uh, primitive and regressive reactions. They want to go back to Egypt. They are easily led by figures who are demagogues, playing on people's fears and their sense of victimhood. Okay. Hence, here's the point. Hence the significance of one remarkable feature of Judaism. It's principled insistence, like no other civilization before, on the dignity and integrity of the individual. We believe that every human being was created in the image and likeness of God. The sages said that every life is like an entire universe. Now I wanna to go to the source material there um, because that's such a famous phrase. Let's go to it. This is the Mishnah. This comes from the second century and is the foundation of rabbinic law and thought. And in this very famous passage, which I've shown my classes before, but it's really, I think it's one of the key rabbinic uh, uh, passages to know. It's in the Mishnah, it's in the section called Sanhedrin, which is the laws of the legal system, the laws of the court, the Sanhedrin. And now they're discussing when there are capital crimes, when there have been murders, and the court is calling witnesses to testify in a murder trial, how the witnesses were exhorted, you could say, I mean, um, um, terrified, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? How they were admonished to give accurate testimony. They brought them in and admonished them and said, perhaps you will state what is supp supposition or rumor or evidence from other witnesses. Or you will say, we heard it from so-and-so, he's trustworthy. Or maybe you were not aware that we would test you by cross-examination. But you must know that capital cases are not as the case property cases. In cases concerning property, a person may pay money and make atonement. But in capital cases, the executed person's blood the person who's been killed, the, the murder victim, the blood and the blood and the blood of their posterity lie at the door at the end of the world. For thus we have found in the case of Cain who slew his brother. As it is said, thy, it doesn't say thy brother's blood crieth. It says thy brother's bloods, demay achicha. His blood and the blood of his succeeding generations. Okay. So they're saying that a capital case involves the spilling of human blood, the worst crime. And then they tell the witnesses, remember, therefore was a single man, Adam, single human being only first created to teach you that if anyone destroy a single soul from the children of humanity, Scripture charges him as if, as if 
um, as if they, uh, there we go, next page. As though he had destroyed a whole world. And whoever rescues a single soul from the children of humanity, scripture credits him as though he had saved a whole world. This is the most, this is pre-humanism, right? This is the second century. And yet all the seeds of humanism are present. First in Genesis chapter one, where it says God makes every human being in the divine image. And then in the way the rabbis um, extrapolate. And this is not an intellectual exercise. And let's go back to looking someone in their face and lifting up their head. You see a unique being and you see a, you, you encounter a being that you can't, who has a, who is a world unto themselves. We each are. I watch little children as they start to emerge with their own experience of being alive. And they are a world unto themselves that I can accompany, but never know, not in that sense. So they go on with the exhortation of the witnesses. And a single human being only was first created for the sake of peace in the human race, so that no one might say to his fellow, my ancestor was greater than your ancestor. And that the heretic should not say, there are many, many powers in heaven. There's not just one source. And they exhort the witnesses and say, and only one human being was first created to proclaim the greatness of the Holy One. Blessed be. For when a man, meaning a, a Caesar, this is the Roman Empire, stamps many coins with one die, and they are all alike to one another, right? The face of Caesar on the coin. But the king of who is the king of kings, the Holy One, blessed be has stamped all humankind with the die of the first Adam, the first Adam, and yet not one of them is, is exactly alike to his fellow. I love that line. We're all stamped in the image of divinity and, then, and as a result, each one of us is unique. That's amazing. Therefore, one is bound to say, for my sake was the universe created. In other words, I matter. Isn't that an amazing passage? I never get tired of reading that passage. That's what Jonathan Sachs is referring to. So let me go back to him and keep going. But I think it's so great to look at the source material when it's just a footnote. Okay, back to Jonathan Sachs. Maimonides wrote that each of us should see ourselves as if our next act could change the fate of the world. Every dissenting view is carefully recorded in the Mishnah, even if the law is otherwise. 
Every verse of the Torah is capable, said the sages, of 70 interpretations. No voice, no view is silent. Judaism never allows us to lose our individuality in the mass. There's a wonderful blessing mentioned in the Talmud to be said on seeing 600,000 Israelites together in one place. It is, Baruch Taronai Chacham Harazim, who discerns the secrets. Okay, now that's an amazing blessing there. It's like, it says in the, in, in the Mishnah of Brachot, um, it's describing blessing. Brachot means blessings. And it's describing all these blessings that one can say. And there's this blessing to say when you see 600,000 Israelites, which is the number that stood at Mount Sinai. So what do the... Um, here, let's click the footnote and see what happens. Rachot, uh, 58a. Look at the wonders of the internet. Look, I'm going to click on this footnote and it's going to take me right to the, right to the source. Can you see, isn't that cool? It's so cool. So I have to scroll down. It doesn't take me right to the source. It takes me to the page. Here it is. The sages taught, one who sees the multitudes of Israel recites, blessed is the one who knows all secrets. Why is this? Because God sees a whole nation whose minds are unlike each other and whose Faces are unlike, unlike each other. That's the bold is the quote of the actual text. And God, who knows all the secrets, knows what is in each of their hearts. So uh, let's see, I click off this, I go back to here, and uh, there. Um, here's how Rabbi Jonathan Sachs phrases what I just read the primary source to you. The Talmud explains that every person is different. We each have different attributes. We all think our own thoughts. Only God can enter the minds of each of us and know what we are thinking. And this is what the blessing refers to. In other words, even in a massive crowd where to humanize faces blur into a mass, God still relates to us as individuals, not as members of a crowd. Beautifully said. That is the meaning of the phrase, lift the head, used in the context of a census. God tells Moses that there is a danger when counting a nation, that each individual will feel insignificant. What am I? What difference can I make? I'm only one of millions, a mere wave in the ocean, a grain of sand in the seashore, dust on the surface of infinity. Against that, God tells Moses to lift people's heads by showing that they each count and they matter as individuals. Um, We each have unique gifts. There is a contribution only I can bring. To lift someone's head means to show them favor, to recognize them. It is a gesture of love. Uh, Sylvia, we'll, we'll address your comment. Uh, um, well, let me just say, so why in orthodoxy is there so little room for dissent? Unfortunately, that's true. Um, 
on the far left right now also. This is what cancel culture is about. Say the wrong thing, you're out. And of course on the right, you know, it's like, you it's about your identity. If you're not a particular, anyway, blah, blah, blah. That's what we humans do. That's what the Torah is here for us to unpack over and over again. Um, this is a beautiful point. There is, however, all the difference in the world between individuality and individualism. Individuality means that I am a unique and valued member of a team. Individualism means that I am not a team player at all. As Hillel says, if I'm only for myself, what am I? And he concludes, he says, a Jewish leader has to respect individuals. They must lift their heads. If you seek to lead, however small or large the group you lead, you must always communicate the value you place on everyone, including those others exclude, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. You must never attempt to sway a crowd by appealing to the primitive emotions of fear or hate, which is what the algorithms of social media do relentlessly. You must never ride roughshod over the opinions of others. And then he puts in bold his takeaway, which I thought he phrased so beautifully. It is hard to lead a nation of individuals but this is the most challenging, empowering, inspiring leadership of all. So, another connection I wanna make with just a couple of minutes left, which is that the portion of Bamidbar always falls on the Shabbat before Shavuot. However, the, our cal calendar masters did it, setting up the Jewish liturgical rhythm. We always read this portion right before Shavuot, where we all stand at Mount Sinai. And so I wanna make a connection based on this theme, but first let me hear what Barbara wants to say. You're still muted, Barbara. There you go. I wanted to ask if there's any connection between the counting of people in a census and the counting of the Omer. Oh, uh, not that um, I've read. That's, but we, it, it'd be a beautiful place to go do our collective um, weaving of, of connections so but i don't have anything off the top of my head is there any connection in the word for counting in the, oh, counting the census and the, counting the word the for counting in the um uh omer is um uh lispor which means to count uh one of the words for count whereas here it's su'u at rosh which means to uh lift up the head it's which means accounting in a slightly different way than counting does. So no, they're, they're not the same words in, in Hebrew. 
Um, but my mind wants to go there. But in the interest of time, I'm just going to show you one more text, okay? Um, and it is over here. No, sorry. There. One of the one of the enduring questions isn't the right word. I would call it koans of Jewish thought. In other words, one of the things to ponder and reflect on is how did everyone at Mount Sinai hear God speak? Did they all hear the same words, the same tone? Where did they hear the voice from? Um, did it come from inside them? Did it come from everywhere? Did it come from a location? So the question, the, 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 the puzzlement of what does it mean to hear God speak has forever been pondered by Jewish religious um, uh, seekers going all the way back. In other words, another way to say that is our tradition never took Mount Sinai literally. They understood that it was trying to describe an experience, an awesome experience. And then you want to try to make your way into that awesome experience. Oh, Rabbi Ellen, thank you for posting the link to Rabbi Sachs's column. It's in the chat. So in the same way that we read in the Mishnah that God created, the Holy One, blessed be, created human beings stamped them in the divine image and they were each different. What does it mean for each of us to hear God's voice on Shavuot? And in the Midrash, it says, come and see how the voice would go out among all Israel, each and every one according to his strength, not physical strength, his, what's your strong suit? You know, where, what's your, what's your special? channel that you're on. The elders heard it according to their strength, the younger men, young men according to their strength, the infants according to their strength, the sucklings according to their strength, the women according to their strength, and even Moshe according to his strength. As it is stated, Moshe would speak and God would answer him with a voice, meaning with a voice that he could withstand. This is a very famous passage um, I think that's all I'll read of it in time. There are many other similar interpretations of what happened at Mount Sinai that um, each of us received the Torah in the way that we were most able to receive it. Which is to say that no individual, every individual's reception is valid but no individual's reception is complete. And that then brings forth again, this constant challenge we have of honoring the individual while we collectively figure out how to do it together. Um, Hillel said, as you know, if I am only, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? 
if I am only for myself, what am I? And so this beautiful idea that every individual received some unique piece of Torah and therefore has to be, if you want to know them, lift up their head, look in their pre- look within them in their presence. They have something to teach you. But that no individual is the sole repository of truth. Another way of thinking about it, which I love, is that if we're all stamped in the divine image, the only way we're going to get a grasp of the divine, of the entirety, the infinity of the design, is if we could see all human faces at once. Then we might, might intimate what's going on here. So that's what I wanted to share. Uh, we'll be celebrating Shavuot on Saturday night um, from, um, what did we say? 7.30 to nine, did we say? Or seven to 8.30? Do you remember, 7:30 Ellen? 7.30 to nine. 7.30 to nine, we'll be online uh, for some teachings, continued teachings. Sunday morning, no, no, yeah, Saturday night. Sunday morning, if you want. Whoever, whoever wants to is gathering with us at 5 a.m. out in front of the synagogue to watch the sunrise and, and, and do the, because shacharit, which is the Hebrew word for the morning prayers, means dawn. So once a year, we can manage it. Uh, and uh, then at 10 a.m. on Sunday, we're going to have our festival service where we're going to chant the Ten Commandments and do a Yizkar service in honor of the festival. All right.